Well, it's been said that, according to the four Gospels, that Jesus moves through the Gospel of Mark, that he teaches through the Gospel of Matthew, that he reveals through the Gospel of John, and that he eats through the Gospel of Luke. Now, Shaggy on Scooby-Doo eats through every episode as well. I'm not equating Jesus and Shaggy. Shaggy eats because he's hungry. Get that skinny rail of sandwich. Jesus eats with people in the gospel because he's building relationships. And because Jesus came to rescue all of humanity, he reached out to all kinds of people, wealthy people and poor people, religious people and notorious sinners, healthy people and sick people and women and men and children and Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. Because there were lots of people who didn't feel welcomed by the temple leadership of the day, Jesus, God in the flesh, and therefore a mobile temple of sorts, he went to the people. It's like if you've ever lived in a rural place, I've lived in some rural places, we didn't have a library, so the bookmobile comes. So Jesus is like the bookmobile. Hmm, I didn't think that, I just thought of that, but no. You know, it's like the temple comes to the people because the the leadership of the temple had kept some people out. But not everyone liked what Jesus was doing. You have to appreciate that right or wrong, the prevailing religious leadership of the time taught that the right way to be with God was by adhering to the law with strictness. And some of the leaders, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, or Bible experts, were so passionate about getting it right that they built laws around the laws to make sure that people didn't break the laws. And the problem is that they begin to treat these extra laws as required laws. And they created a system that was almost impossible for the average person to keep. And that meant there were lots and lots of people, ordinary people, who felt far from God, dirty, shameful, sinful, like they were on the outside looking in. And when you associate your relationship with God with how well you perform at keeping the laws, and when those laws are impossible to keep, you begin to doubt the possibility that God could ever love you. And you begin to think, That if the religious leaders are this hard and exacting, if they're this forgiving and and quick to cast aside sinners, then maybe that's what God is like. And so, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to show what the character of God really is, who God is really like, how he truly feels. And he did these kinds of things like eating with outsiders. The religious leaders saw Jesus doing this and felt threatened by him. Now, to be fair to them, Jesus, at this point in the the story, has not died and resurrected from the grave. They don't really know, even though there's lots of signs to point to this, they don't really know that he is God in the flesh. They don't really know or believe that he is the Messiah. As far as they could tell, he was odd. He's breaking all the laws that they had associated with holiness, and therefore, Jesus became a threat to them. And that is the background to the story we're going to read tonight. Would you stand with me if you're able? We're going to look at Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. 
both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman if she has lost or if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for i have found the coin which i had lost in the same way i tell you there there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents Lord, thank you for this good news, for trying so hard in so many ways to impress upon these scribes and Pharisees and therefore upon us as we're reading this now, the graciousness with which you do your ministry, you do your life, you do your God thing. Thank you to you that, that you're a God who pursues, and thank you for inviting us into your joy. Amen. You may be seated. Our text begins with tax collectors and sinners coming to listen to Jesus teach. Now, the religious leaders, of course, take issue with this because, and they're grumbling among themselves, yet, of course, because they're so tactful, they grumble loud enough so everyone can hear. Yes, they don't like it, that this man receives, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, if just little reminder here they they were despised because they were jewish men whose job was to collect taxes from fellow jews and they did this for the roman empire who was occupying israel at the time and in order to make a living they had to mark up the amount of taxes so if keely and sophia each owed five dollars in taxes and i'm the tax collector i would come to keely and sophia i got to feed my family so i would charge them each 550 each so then I get a profit of a dollar on those two head taxes. Now, some tax collectors marked up their rates to ridiculous amounts, sometimes 25%, 50%. And there's nothing you could do about it. You had to pay the tax. Okay? And, and, and so even though they weren't all crooked, they're lumped into a negative group, kind of like you might say, you know, I was talking to this person, and they kind of reminded me of, uh, like a used car salesman, right? Now, I know some used car salesmen. They're nice people. There's nothing inherently wrong with a used car salesman, but we've kind of turned that into a cliche in our culture. And that's how tax collectors were kind of lumped in, that they were this nasty sort of group. And the point is that tax collectors were associates of the pagan Roman Empire. And therefore, the religious leaders forbade them from participating in the life of the temple. This is so important. The religious leaders would not let them participate in the life of the temple. Why does that matter? You might think, oh, cool, they're out of getting to go to church. No, listen, no temple means no atonement 
through the sacrifices that were offered there. And if you couldn't get atonement for your sins, then you were walking around believing you were always at odds with God. And you were always at odds or different or less than the other people who had access to the temple who were walking around as righteous people. In a similar way, sinners, that title, includes all kinds of people. Now, obviously, there were straight-up sinners, like people who actually broke the law of God, adulterers and thieves and prostitutes and murderers. That's pretty clear. But there were others who were lumped into this group that might surprise you. Lepers, severely deformed people, diseased people, people who were blind. The common belief was that these people were in their condition because of some wrong that they had done, and God was punishing them. No, that's not in the Bible, but that's the common belief, you understand. So if they were unclean because of this disease or deformity, they could not come into the temple. And like the tax collectors, if they couldn't come close to God and participate in the atoning sacrifices that happened at the temple, then they were believed to be unsavable. Could you imagine walking around believing you were just unsavable, like you could never come close to God? There's whole groups of people walking around like that. And here is Jesus' teaching this group of people. And he's eating with this group of people. And you can see why the Pharisees were grumbling, complaining about his actions. And so Jesus is about to tell three stories called parables to confront the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to cover two of the parables, and then over the next few weeks we're going to really kind of settle into the prodigal son, which is the third parable, which, you know, just needs a lot more attention. So we're going to do that the right way. Tonight we're going to look at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. First, just a quick word on parables. If we're going to interpret the parables of Jesus correctly, we need to understand what kind of stories they are. They are not allegories where every single thing in there is a detail that equates to something in the real world. Parable simply is a, is a word made up of two words. One is a prefix, para. So you might think um, parallel, right? Two lines that go together, parallel. Um, what other para words are there? Parachute, para, you're a paraeducator, right? No, not you. You're a real, I don't know what, paraeducators come alongside <laughs> educators, right? Paralegal comes alongside a, a, a lawyer, right? So there's, para means alongside. And balo is a Greek word that means to throw. So a parable is something that is thrown alongside. It's a story that's thrown alongside another story. The religious leaders are making a value judgment on Jesus, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus throws down a couple stories alongside their belief as a way of eliciting a response from them. Parables are stories that use images and simile to make us think and invite us to respond. Right? So, for both parables, the opening sentence are, uh, sentences are intended to build an obvious bridge with the hearer. So, here's the examples. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
To a first century hearer, the answer is obvious. Well, of course that's what you would do. That's what any shepherd would do. Lost sheep are dumb. They're as good as dead. They literally just hunker down and they will starve to death. They'll just be eaten by an animal. They can't even, they won't even find their way back. So the shepherd, anybody knows, will go find the lost sheep. Okay? And probably leave the 99 with a shepherd buddy or I mean, if you have a, a flock of 100 sheep you're probably not shepherding them by yourself anyway so there's someone there it's not about the 99 by the way it's about the seeking after the one or what woman if she has 10 drachma and loses one does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it a drachma is worth about a day's wages if you only have 10 drachma and you lose one you are not going to rest easily until you find that coin. Houses in those days, if they had windows at all, remember there's no glass, they had very small windows in a dirt, mud, kind of adobe-like wall. And so you had to light a candle to, to find a lost coin. Dirt floors were the norm, but actually in the place where Jesus is teaching this parable, basalt rock was everywhere. And archaeological digs in this area show a lot of basalt floors. In fact, what's funny is that the people have found coins stuck in between the basalt cracks. And so you can totally imagine this lady is lighting a lamp or a candle and sweeping, trying to find this coin that's in a crevice. And many of these villages, people were self-sufficient in the sense that everything was barter. So I, I, I have sheep, I trade wool for your bread, and you, know, you, you, you barter and trade. Cash currency wasn't very common. So to have 10 drachma is a big deal, and to lose one-tenth of your wealth, you better expect that that lady is going to look. These two examples, the, sh the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep, the woman who searches for the, the lost coin, they're bridge builders with the audience to say, of course, that's what a person would do. Think of how hard you might look for something that you lost. Anyone ever lost your, I don't know, cell phone? Uh, car keys, Corey? Uh, no, you never do that. Yeah. I've lost my wallet three times, twice on top of gas pumps, and once fell out of my, we were, what were we doing at that park and ride? Did we, I don't know, we bought a car or something like that. Yeah, I dropped my wallet on park and ride. Hours later in the dark, we came and we found it. Pray for things you lost. It's worked for me three times. <clears throat> But you know how when you lose something of value, it, you, you, first of all, it freaks you out. But the second thing, if you experience that relief of finding it again, it's like, it, it's hyperparabolic, but it is like life-giving, at least for that short moment. Or if you've ever been let off um, from a speeding ticket, oh, it feels so good. New freedom on life. Not that I ever speed. Well, yeah, I do. Uh, but so you know that feeling of, of finding the lost thing. I've never called my friends over to party because I found my wallet, but it does feel amazing. And in these two parables, the shepherd and the woman both go to great lengths to find what was lost. And they both rejoice when they find that what was lost. Rejoicing is a key term in this passage. In eight verses, so you've got two verses of introduction, and then you've got eight verses that tell the two parables. Rejoicing joy or rejoice is five, five times shows up in there. The punchline, though, is yet to come. Jesus, ever the master teacher, is using a common rabbinic argument called, well, I don't know if it's called this. It's basically how much more logic. If a shepherd rejoices with his friends after, and family after finding a lost sheep, 
how much more joy will there be in heaven among God and the heavenly hosts when one sinner repents and comes home? How much more? If a woman gathers her friends to rejoice over the finding of one lost coin, how much more joy in the presence of the angels and God will there be over one sinner who repents? And all of a sudden, Jesus brings this hypothetical story back to the realm of the reality for the Pharisees and the scribes. Because the logic is, if you can agree with the response to losing and finding joy of shepherds and the woman, then certainly you can agree that God is rejoicing when one of his lost image bearers is found. How much more valuable is a human life than a coin or a sheep? These, these parables, just let me just state the obvious, they reveal such good news. They are two stories that are primarily, above all else, about God's character. God does not hate sinners, which means God does not hate you. He pursues them. God does not begrudge the fact that I got to come down and fix this. They're going to pay. He rejoices when one is found. If you've ever wondered about how God feels about you, if you've ever doubted that God loves the lost people in your life, even the really difficult ones, hear the good news. We have a God who desires us, who rejoices when we repent and when the lost are found. So good. Two details I want to point out. First, I hear a lot of people talk on social media or in some forms of Christian teaching that seem to think because Jesus ate and hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people of all kinds, that the church ought to just be okay with anything goes and every opinion and every choice and every behavior. The satirical Christian blog, The Babylon Bee, uh, picked up on this with an amusing headline. A team of experts in biblical Greek released a report Tuesday confirming that the word often translated repent in most English versions of the New Testament is perhaps better rendered, you do you. It's a joke at how many teachers in the church these days have become afraid to call people to change. Jesus was clear in his life and his teaching that all people, like not just certain people, but all people need to repent. Which literally, it's not, that, it's not the guy with the sign with the fire. Repent means to turn around, to head home toward Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus, not in yourself and not in your politics and, or in the universe or in following all the rules even, even the God rules. To not put your trust in those things, but to turn around and come to put our trust in Jesus. So yes, Jesus absolutely hung out with all kinds of people, and he invited them to turn to him and to repent and to be forgiven and to have a new life. This is what I want to drive home, is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had made it seem like sinners and tax collectors had no chance of turning to God. They taught that those types of people were just flat out condemned. And so Jesus went to them not to say, you do you, not to condone, but to invite them into a relationship with God that they thought was impossible. So when he's hanging out with a dude with leprosy who just thought like, why are you even coming near me? You're healthy. 
Jesus says, no, 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 you can be in my community. And when he goes to the woman caught in adultery, like, that's a real, that's not like, oh, I was born with a deformity. That's like, she's made a bad choice. But he's saying, you're not condemned forever. You can change your life. Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, we know Zacchaeus wasn't just a regular tax collector. He was a swindler. He got wealthy off of, is that a bad word? Um, after um, robbing people in a bad way. And Jesus comes to his house for dinner, and that transforms his heart, and he gives back what he had stolen. That's repentance. That's repentance. The opportunity, this is what I think what we have to remember, the opportunity to repent is for the first century hearer in itself good news. And it is good news for us today too. So ask yourself, do you make an effort to know people who are lost? People who Jesus is pursuing. Do you make an effort? And if not, just I'm just I'm asking myself the same questions, why not? Why not? And if so, if you have people in your life that either they're, they're tangially lost and you just have them at work or at school or on your soccer team or your softball team or whatever it is, or if you are actively seeking them, would the kind of gospel that your life shows, the kind of attitude you put out, would it communicate that your God is loving and gracious and desires relationship with them? important questions for us to ask. And the other thing I want to point out is that sometimes there's a confusing bit about the 99 who don't need repentance. What does that mean? That's kind of a trip. And I'm breaking all the rules here because in a parable, you're not really supposed to pay attention to all those details, but it still trips people up. And I know that you're thinking, what about those 99? All right, let me break it down with what I think. Just what I think. I think it probably means two things. First, I think there's a difference well, I know there's a difference biblically between being righteous, 99 righteous people who didn't need to repent, and being perfect. There's a difference biblically, okay? Jesus is not saying that there's 99 perfect people who don't need to repent, but technically, according to the law, you could be a righteous person by both adhering to the law the best you could, and then when you fail at adhering to the law, when you sin, you have your sin atoned for. And when you have your sin atoned for on a regular basis, you walk out of the temple as a righteous person. Okay? In fact, Zechariah, for example, the son of John the Baptist, is described by Luke as a righteous man. Doesn't mean he's a perfect man, he's a righteous man. Okay? So technically, there could be 99 righteous people. Second, I think, I think that Jesus is probably making a well-meaning dig at the Pharisees, who, although they might be in that technically righteous camp, were not righteous where it counts, in their hearts. They don't rejoice when the lost are saved. Okay, now this is so obvious. I'm just going to point it out anyway because it uh, came up to me. Who is Jesus' primary audience in the parables? Just shout it out. Who's his primary audience in these parables? Who's ordinary people, but specifically it says right in, the, in verse 1 and 2. The Pharisees and the scribes. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's addressing their grumbling. Now consider how graciously Jesus is dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. They have been abusing the sheep of Israel by stacking up requirements of the law 
to impossible standards. They're guilty of excluding vast groups of people who didn't live up to their standards. And Jesus does not condemn them outright. He doesn't, Jesus is like, I don't even know how to put it in a way that is not crazy sounding. Like, he knows the Bible really well, right? He's Jesus. Don't you think Jesus could have just sliced them up in a debate about pulling out Bible verses? He's like, actually, have you guys ever read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Amos or... What are you reading to say that people have to live this way? Like, God is gracious and pursuing. So, so Jesus could have just gotten a heated debate with them on biblical topics and blasted them. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't walk away and ignore them. Could have done that. Instead, Jesus sees that the Pharisees and the scribes are too lost and that their hearts are hard, and they can't even rejoice when the lost are saved. And he knows that people with hard hearts have defensive minds. Had he met their resistance with quotes from the Bible and proof texting and theology, they would have just shut down and rationalized their stance. You know that's true, because you've done it, and you've talked to people who do that. I do it too. But Jesus tells a story instead. Stories are always more disarming. Parables are always intended to elicit a response. And so what response do you think these parables were meant to bring about in the Pharisees? I think it's, they're meant to bring about conviction that they are not happy about what makes God happy. That these men claim to represent God and to know his way, and yet Jesus is pointing out that they are not happy about the things that make God happy. And the opportunity for them to repent and to know the love of Jesus is laid out on a platter in these these parables. Now, I have to confess that if you were to ask me before studying for this passage last week, hey, Chris, rank the top five things in your life that make you happy. I would not, off the top of my head, said, you know, it makes me really happy, top five, is when the Lord rescues someone, when a sinner comes to repentance and joins the church. Now, if you, if you were to, to ask it a different way, say, hey, Chris, does it make you happy when someone comes to the Lord? Of course that makes me happy, but it's not in my top five off the top of my head. Isn't the top five, 10, 20 off the top of your head? Does that just come off? I, I'm just, I'm convicted by that. So while I don't see myself as a stuffy Pharisee making laws everyone has to go through, I'm also not, like I'm distracted with life, with other stuff, with other, some good things. This is a convicting passage for me. I I think it is for you too. I don't think I have a hard heart against people. But I'm distracted. The parable invites us to respond by asking Jesus to change our hearts. We can ask Jesus to change our hearts. Just because many of us are part of the church, just because we may be doing okay, doesn't mean that we can just sit by and be satisfied while others are in need of Jesus. And maybe the one action step from this message is that you pray that Jesus would give you You can pray for me, you can pray for just the church in general, that Jesus would give us broken hearts for the lost and rejoicing hearts when people come to know him. The parable is to the Pharisees. 
but it also teaches us something about God. And it tells us that he is joyful and he is happy when the lost are found. Jesus is actively pursuing the lost. And that means that Jesus is pursuing the people you love. He's pursuing the people you don't love that still need Jesus. And he's at work all around us. I want to invite you to take out your bulletin or a piece of paper if you have one. And just write the names of three people that are in your life who seem very far from Jesus. And I want to, I want to encourage you to have one of those three to be someone that you don't particularly like. Don't worry, this is going to stay completely private. This is all about you. You've got this. My hope is that we would take these. I've got one in my Bible already because I did it this week. Um, that we would take these and put them in a place, maybe your devotional, your Bible, someplace close to you. Um, that that you and I could join Jesus in what he's already doing. I have a deep conviction, and the Bible is my foundation for this, that, that Jesus is already working in people's lives. Like, he wants them in his family more than you and I do. And so what we do through prayer is we actively join Jesus in what he's doing. And what I found is two things. A lot of times it melts people's hearts when we join in prayer. And another thing, and maybe just as important, is it changes my heart. And it will change your heart towards people. These parables were originally addressed to stuffy Pharisees. They are good news to the stuffy, and they are good news to the lost. But maybe you're here today, and you don't feel like you fit either of those characters or categories. Maybe you're coming to the realization that you're kind of just going through the motions. Maybe the joy of your own repentance and rescue has worn off, and now you're an autopilot. And maybe you've slipped into a kind of a spiritual limbo where you're just not sure where you stand with God anymore. I hear this good news. This is, this is awesome. This is why Collins read from Ezekiel 34. Parables are not allegories, but Jesus doesn't choose his images arbitrarily. Throughout the prophetic writings, and the Psalms, the people of God are often referred to as sheep, while God is the shepherd. He appointed Aaron and the line of the priests to watch over the people as under-shepherds, but at various points in Israel's history, the shepherds abandoned their duties or abused their duties. They were only um, out for themselves, to make a profit or to have prestige, and they allowed people to wander off into sin, and they failed to call on the people to care for the widows and the sick and the poor and the fatherless and the foreigner. And the prophet Ezekiel is writing at such a time when the priesthood's gone off the rails, the people are either in sin or they're in trouble or both, and through Ezekiel, God promised that he would come in the place of the corrupt shepherds. And that he would send a savior from the line of David who would be the good shepherd. The good shepherd would save the sheep and set things right. And the good shepherd would receive all who repent. Is it a coincidence then that Jesus, who tells this parable, is also known, uh, or, or he's from the line of David. 
And is it an accident that Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd? Is it not glorious news that whether we're bitter and hard like the Pharisees, lost like those in open sin, or stuck in between and overwhelmed with the busyness of life, that Jesus has come for you and for me? He never stops pursuing because repentance and turning to him is never just a one-time deal. It's an open door of gracious opportunity to let go of that which is killing us in exchange for trust in Jesus, the one who gives us life. That's a reason to rejoice with God. Let's pray. Lord, what good reason we have to be filled with joy that you are the rescuer, that you are more diligent even than a shepherd leaving the 99 to seek the one, more diligent even than a woman who lights a lamp and sweeps the floor and searches until the coin is found. Thank you that you never stop pursuing, and not just once, but for our life. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would fill us with the joy of salvation, that you would cause us to be people who, who are joyful about the fact that you rescue us, that you've rescued our other brothers and sisters sitting around us, and that you are pursuing people all the time. Would you order our affections, order our, our hearts to, to find joy in, in the substantial things, to find true happiness in the things that make you happy? Even if that means, and especially if that means we need to sacrifice. Lord, thank you also for including us in your mission to pray for the lost, the hurting, the outsider. Help us to love people well enough to pray for them, to eat with them, to be in relationship. In Jesus' name.